0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. But wait, there's more. You can now contribute through Venmo and Zelle by using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You've got
1: speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. My are out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? And that baby
2: light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
1: Houston uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Martin giant for giant leap for mankind.
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 413 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3, Rendezvous, Docking, and Vomit. From the previous episode, on July 28, 1973, at 7.10 Eastern Daylight Time, the Skylab 3 mission lifted off and began its climb to orbit. The launch was uneventful, just as everyone hoped. During the ascent, the separation of the launch escape tower and the shutdown of the S-4B second stage all proceeded according to plan. 9 minutes 51 seconds after leaving Florida, the spacecraft was in orbit at 83.6 by 125 nautical miles. A few minutes later, the command and service module separated from the Saturn rocket and the crew prepared to commence their eight-hour chase toward Skylab. Computations to affect the rendezvous and the unmanned workshop were completed in addition to a series of burns of the large SPS engine in the back of the service module. Here's a sample of what that sounded like
1: and uh, i never got b mag 2 results page 1-4 did you get them uh sure dude let me give them to you right now now twenty one seven eight seven four one five five zero nine three five nine eight two. four. One five five zero 15509 35982 now the ascap thumb wheels were 1776 1581 3594 and that was the delta t of 46 now we have a BMAG-1 uh, comparison going at this time and we've been 25 minutes into it. So next time we talk with you, we'll give you some information on dMAG one also. Good show. if you'll. I've got an NC-2 uh, preliminary pad for you, page one 9 For whoever's going to copy the NC-2 pad, uh, I am going to have a Delta-V-Y for you. It's uh, printed in there zeros, but I have one. The reason is uh, you have a slight out of plane and it's. Uh, we think we're a little bit better off getting it out of the way here at mc 2 instead of saving it for, and by doing it here, we should reduce what we have to uh, get out in MCC and NSR. Sounds like a good idea. We're uh, ready to copy. Okay, starting with now zero, zero, 004. 33. 5700. Zero, zero. Plus 1535. Okay, here's your delta Vy minus 014.0. Okay, starting again with delta Vz plus four balls, 180, 256, 356, 1397, 0007. Weight three zero five. Five, seven. Trims plus 138 plus 041. Go ahead. Okay. 004-3357 00 1535 zero, three, three, zero, zero, one, five, 140. That's a minus. Plus, all tips, 180-256- 356- 1397-0007 Three zero five five seven plus one three eight plus zero four one. Okay, and we'd like to give you a burn a star check uh, for these burns since we are have a couple of funnies. Uh, for this one, will be star one three, and that should give you a shaft of uh, plus three one eight point four, and a trunnion of plus zero seven point seven. Two remarks. Uh, this will be a single, single bank burn, bank alpha, which is nominal. And, uh, and the other one was that the delta VY was due to a slide out of plane. I already told you about that one. Okay, I understand that. Star 13 plus 3184
0: and plus 077 seven, and bank alpha. As I hopefully demonstrated, the rendezvous procedure was still very complicated. It was going to become more complicated now. For about this time, the crew made a rather unusual observation. Garriott was in the center couch, and Lausma was on his right with a small window near his seat. Suddenly, Lausma announced, "Owen, there's one of our thrusters floating by the window." Garriott confirmed the object did indeed look like a nozzle from one of the service module's quad thrusters. Of course, Lousma thought that was very odd. The object was a conical shape, just like a thruster, so it looked like a thruster bell or nozzle. But Jack didn't quite deduce the implications of that at this time because they were so busy with the rendezvous procedures. He just reported it and went on to the next issue. After all, the primary thrust for the Apollo spacecraft was provided by the large service propulsion engine at the rear of the service module. The four small quad thruster packs were used for directional control. They were positioned around the service module at 90 degree angles from one another. Al Bean also looked out the window and agreed it certainly looked like a thruster, but the crew could hardly believe it really was a nozzle. Being noticed the sighting was quickly followed by a thruster low-temperature master alarm. At this point, the crew believed that there must have been a small propellant leak which slowly spread around the inside surface of the thruster and froze into ice in the shape of the metal thruster exhaust cone. Then, when that thruster was fired the next time, even briefly, it could have shaken the ice loose and it slowly floated by Lausma's window. Based on that theory, Bean radioed to Mission Control for confirmation and was told to turn off the propellants to that quad of four thrusters. So now, there were only three quads that were still working. In the history of space flight, this had never happened before, and it was going to make the rendezvous more difficult to pull off. Here's the clip. Roger can
1: stand by, please, just a second the more I think about this terminator business, the more I think you're right. Now, Houston, uh, we see a decrease in helium and propellants in Quad Bravo, and we'd like to secure that Quad. Well, i tell you, we were just getting ready to tell you that we've got uh, some sort of uh, sparklers going by the right-hand window over by Jack, but we don't have any going by the left. And uh, it's quite a bit. We just did that uh, purge, and we thought maybe that was it. But maybe we've got something spraying out that side. I don't know. Roger. Uh, We'll uh, secure Quad Bravo here and continue to look at it. It uh, looks like you're driving through uh, kind of a snowstorm real fast. It's going from uh, minus X uh, up to plus X. uh. Roger. Uh, Have you secured Quad Bravo? Affirm. Roger. Thank you. Did you want both the helium and the propellant secured? That's affirmative, uh, CDR. Okay, we did both of them. And uh, we still got the snowstorm out the right side there. Roger. I'm uh, wondering if it's got something to do with that... uh, H2 on fuel cell 1. Of course, we can't uh, tell what fuel cell 3 is doing on H2 because the meter isn't working. Roger, we're continuing to look at it. Okay. Roger, uh, Al, sorry for the uh, comm problems back there. Bermuda, what I was trying to tell you, in case you didn't hear, is we don't intend to uh, do any more troubleshooting right now in Quad Bravo. Uh, Looks like we're uh, completely going for the rendezvous. we still got the orbit capabilities and uh, we'd like to think about that one for a while. Okay. Uh, Something uh, quite interesting just drifted by the right window. Uh, wish we could have got a picture of it, but it was a uh, piece of frost in uh, the shape of a cone the same size as uh, the thruster nozzle. Okay. Right it, must to there. About, uh, it must have been about four to six inches uh, along the uh, long axis of the cone. Roger,
0: coming. The ground was obviously not that concerned with the loss of one quad. After all, in addition to the calculated course corrections being read up to the spacecraft, there was onboard electronic equipment that provided radio contact for the VHF ranging information the command and service module transmitted a tone-modulated signal to the Skylab transponder, which received and then transmitted the signal back to the command module, where the returning signal was analyzed to determine the distance and the closing rate of the two spacecraft. However, the astronauts who were making the rendezvous had quite a different view on the situation. The spacecraft was now considered crippled because it only had three quad thruster packs. Rendezvous required the Apollo spacecraft to arrive in the near vicinity of the Skylab, meaning within 330 feet or so, and match its velocity with that of the station. The commander flying the command module had a schedule of quad thruster firings that had to be carefully executed to slowly match his speed to that of Skylab so that the crew would arrive on station with no relative motion. Otherwise, the Apollo might arrive at the Skylab rendezvous point with too much speed or even worse, collide with Skylab, which would be catastrophic. This actually happened several years later during a manual rendezvous of a Progress vehicle at the Russian space station Mir, with nearly disastrous results. Of course, this should not happen under normal circumstances, but the Skylab 3 situation was not normal. The loss of one set of quad thrusters meant that less than full force was available. This would reduce controllability of the spacecraft. Also, this failure produced an asymmetric thrust since nothing compensated for the lost quad on one side of the command service module. Any firing of the other thrusters such as braking to slow down, produced unwanted rotation, and that had to be compensated for to bring the spacecraft back to the desired pointing direction or attitude, which produced more changes in movement. Additionally, every time Bean used the thrusters to slow down, he had to fire them for a longer period Then scheduled to compensate for the missing quad pack. This sequence of slow down, correct pointing direction, slow more down, had to be repeated multiple times during the rendezvous phase, and it all had to be done precisely to complete a successful rendezvous. So, as the Apollo craft zoomed along at almost 5 miles per second around the Earth, its speed relative to Skylab was only a few feet per second and this had to be slowly reduced to zero at the rendezvous point. To further complicate matters, Bean knew if he slowed down too much he would have to speed up again, which meant wasting precious fuel. The crew first saw the station about 390 miles away. It was just a bright dot in the navigational telescope that grew brighter and began to take form as they got closer. Gradually, they identified the four flashing lights on the Apollo telescope mount. Soon, they were close enough to see the Skylab with the darkness of space as the background. Then, the solar panels of the Apollo telescope mount and one wing of the workshop solar array came into view. And finally, the orange parasol set by the first crew was visible. For being, this was the most nerve-wracking time for the whole trip he had to get his approach at just the right velocity. His heart rate was higher than when he landed on the moon. But he wound up right below Skylab at the correct velocity. Somehow, the crew had pulled off a rendezvous with only three quad thrusters, which they never simulated in practice. Seven hours, 52 minutes after launch, the Apollo spacecraft arrived in the vicinity of Skylab and prepared to send back TV pictures to the ground. Here's our home in the sky, Lausma told CAPCOM truly as the command and service module approached the cluster.
2: This is Skylab Control. It's seven hours, 52 minutes elapsed time. Skylab coming up within range of Goldstone now. That Y-rate gyro that was lost a few minutes ago has not failed completely. Flight director Don Putty says it can be updated, but not within the time available before station keeping begins. We're standing by for television at Goldstone.
1: Picture coming in now at Houston, we're AOS Goldstone. Okay. Should have some TV down there, Dick. Roger, we can see it trying to lock up, but uh, it's not, I don't have a picture yet. Uh, we're looking at the underside of it now, Dick. Uh, we can see S-149 out the anti solar airlock, and uh, we can also see the parasol flapping in the breeze. Roger, we have a good uh, picture, and uh, we're looking at it. Okay, Dick, we're uh, zoomed all the way out now. Roger. Looking right in the wardroom window. Nobody's home. <laughs> Roger, but you will be. Nick, is there anything I can do to that picture and touch it up? Uh, we don't have the earth in the background yet, but aside from that, look, I can need any focus or anything. Roger, uh, the picture looks pretty good. We are, it's about the bottom uh, half of the picture seems to be blocked out by the bottom uh, half, I guess it is, of the window structure. But the picture itself uh, looks pretty good. Maybe it, maybe it is the zoom setting you have. All right, notice that all the way in. haven't been able to get rid of it. Okay. Well, the picture we do have, which is about the top 60% of the screen, uh, is pretty good. Skylab Houston, uh, requests you switch quad delta to the PSM. Roger. Skylab Houston, uh, GNC reminds us that the uh, same thing happened on uh, 2, that during this phase we did get uh, hot quads uh, in it, and it was on 8. So just keep an eye on it, and so will we. Roger. Well so the old parasol, uh, Dick, is really blowing in the breeze. Looks like about a 10 or 15-knot gale every time the uh, thrusters a uh, fire in just a very gentle fly around here. Roger, uh, we were watching that very thing there. I think you will probably uh, knock off the fly around at this point to avoid blowing that thirst all the way. I think that's certainly your call, and looks like we concur that the jets force the parasol up against the, side, the shiny surface of the workshop as uh, we fly around and then it's the uh, recoil from the uh, 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 springs the, the uh, fishing rods that just bring it back out <laughs> right Joe, and uh, we certainly concur uh, we think that'd be a prudent thing to do uh, you can see it flopping there in the breeze in fact we've blown it a little bit more than we'd like to, to tell you the truth We'll try to drift off to the side a little bit, and then uh, maybe we can uh, prevent hitting it. Roger, CDR, concur with that. As you can probably also tell, it appears to be rotated uh, by about the five to 10 degrees as expected. Roger. There is a good look now at the sun end of the Apollo telescope mount. The problem is uh, we're trying to slide around to the front of it and every time we fire aft thrusters, which uh, moves that direction, it tends to get under the front edge of the uh, sunshade. We'll try to just drift a little bit longer. Roger, TDR. We're drifting away uh, the best we can. I'd like to turn a little bit uh, to the left and show it to you better, but every time I start to turn that way, it gives the uh, parasol a, uh, a flip up at the front. Roger, uh, CDR. Do what you think is best to avoid uh, as much uh, uh, blowing of the parasol as you can.
0: uh, We'll do without the picture. The TV views from the command module revealed the reaction control system of the Apollo blowing the parasol during a fly around the station. Ground controllers were concerned that the thrusters might damage the parasol or even contaminate the solar array cells. So, the fly-around was terminated. 52 minutes later, the crew gently nudged the Apollo docking probe into the drogue of the orbital workshop.
1: Skylab Houston, uh, we've taken a look at uh, both the CSM and the Swiss, they both look good. Here go for docking, we're about a minute and a half from LOS. Roger. uh That went real well. The uh, tunnel pressure integrity check worked fine. We have not removed the yet, uh, and we're uh, having a snack and then we're going to get after it. Roger, CDR, and we'd like to accept on the computer. We got some uh, CMC servicing to this.
0: Before the crew could go on to the station, Skylab Control had a few changes to make to the checklist.
1: I've got changes, one change in the activation checklist and a couple of changes in the entry checklist if you happen to have uh, that book out and that's all the checklist changes I have in front of me now. Okay, go ahead on the activation. I've got one of those. Okay, Al, if you'll turn to page one dash three. Okay, we're there. Okay, down there in the under CSM RCS propellant reconfiguration in the lower right-hand column, uh, you want to that quad Bravo entry should read quad Bravo close. Talkbacks two of them to Barbara Pole, verify. Okay. Okay. Just a second. We have the entry book now, Houston. Okay, and the entry uh, checklist first uh, on page 11-1, if you'll uh, turn back to there. Okay, go ahead. Roger, uh, that block data pad that's written in there on 11-1, the one for day 210, you should just delete that whole pad. It turns out that it uh, covers a period that's about five to six hours from now. We won't need it, plus uh, there's some very bad weather in that area of possible hurricane brewing, so we just like to delete that and the uh, next change is on page E11-10. Okay, we made the change and we're standing by an 11-10. Okay, uh, the next to the bottom entry, uh, delete the, the words in there that say uh, load noun 47 and noun 48 from deorbit orbit burn pad. These entry checklist changes, Al, uh, should have been—they're in the no com section—and they should have been made pre-flight. We missed them, and I just—we just wanted to uh, get them up when we could. We're about uh, okay. We're about 30 seconds from uh, LOS here at Carnarvon. Uh, Guam is coming up at 9:07, uh, and I'll get the last two changes in entry book there. Okay, could you give us uh, GMT time hack roughly right now? Roger. The CMC is on GMT, and the time now is 20 hours, 10 minutes, and 35 seconds. Thank you. Roger.
2: This is Skylab Control. Nine hours, one minute, ground elapsed time. However, this will probably probably be the... Final reference in this mission to ground elapsed time and as much as the command module computer timing system has been changed by the ground from ground elapsed time to Greenwich Mean Time or Zulu. Crew reported when finally contacted over at Carnarvon that the docking was successful. They did not give a time of docking so it has to be assumed that it was on time by the flight plan, which would have been approximately eight hours, 30 minutes ground elapsed time just prior to entering darkness, or right at spacecraft sunset. The crew mentioned that they're in the process of having a snack, which according to the menu consists of peanut butter, biscuits, peaches, vanilla wafers, orange drink,
0: Two hours after docking, with all checks completed, the hatches were opened and the three astronauts transferred into the multiple docking adapter. Now, 36 days after the first crew closed the hatches and undocked, the second crew reoccupied the station. This was the first time that a space station had been reoccupied by a second crew. You may recall from previous episodes, in 1971, the Soviet Salyut station had been crewed by the three Soyuz-11 cosmonauts, but the earlier Soyuz-10 crew had been unable to secure a hard docking and entry into the station, and a planned Soyuz-12 mission was abandoned after the deaths of the Soyuz-11. Cosmonauts. Even after making it onto the station and beginning to power it up, the astronauts were still concerned about the quad thrusters. The
1: Roger, what's our general RCS uh, condition as far as remaining uh, 59 days and uh, the like? Okay, uh, qualitatively you're in good shape. Uh, If you want some specific numbers, we can get them now, or I think we plan on sending them up uh, tomorrow. No, just kind of wanted a feel for it. I knew we, you know, we lost this quad, used quite a bit there uh, in the flyer out, and uh, just wondered what the general situation was. We're about 5.5 or 6% greater than the service module RCSC orbit redline at at the present time, Alan. Okay, I understand. How are you all coming and progressing through the checklist? Uh, We're coming along real well. Uh, Owen's over there uh, connecting up the uh, comm between the vehicles. Jack, I don't know where he is. He's down here in the workshop doing something, I guess. Activating the electrical system, but I don't know because I see all the lights are on down there. And uh, I'm up here. I've uh, down as far as page one twenty-four doing the uh, CMO2 system config, and I'm at about a, the middle of that. Okay, mighty fine, thank you. Okay.
0: Unfortunately, the reactivation of the station was slowed due to a combination of three things: one the crew experiencing motion sickness, two, the reliability of the command and service module, and three, a series of hardware and system troubleshooting tests. In fact, shortly after entering orbit, Jack Lausma began to experience the symptoms of motion sickness, which is now termed Space Adaptation Syndrome. Jack took one scopalamine dextroamphetamine called Scopdrex, anti motion sickness capsule, and he was able to take an active part in the rendezvous and docking procedures and also eat lunch. About 14 hours into the mission, both Garriott and Bean complained of stomach awareness and their inability to move quickly around the station even though jack took the scopdricks and slowed down his activities he still got very sick after eating the evening meal of course the effect of all this was that the crew's task fell behind schedule the next morning the crew could not eat all their breakfast bean told Mission Control that they were not completing the activities as quickly as intended and requested that they be allowed to rest in their bunks and stop moving around for a while. Initially, Mission Control was somewhat hesitant but did agree to giving them the afternoon off. Unfortunately, Mission Control interrupted their rest that afternoon to get the crew busy on solving electrical problems in the station.
2: Activation consumed the better part of the first week because not everything went according to plan. I uh, closed the circuit breaker on that beauty,
1: and uh, it popped open and uh, so then I uh, turned the switch off and uh, closed the circuit breaker and then turn the switch back on and the circuit breaker popped open again. So uh, something's wrong with Molesip B secondary fan. To give you a feel where we are at the moment, uh, we're beginning to eat our meal right now. We've had to move extremely slowly to uh, keep from uh, causing any uh, vestibular problems with ourselves by that. Uh, I think both uh, Owen and I have a little bit of stomach awareness, so we tend to uh, be fairly careful how we move. And since we are moving uh, rather slowly, then uh, it's taking uh, a little bit longer than we planned.
0: The controllers did agree to postpone the planned Apollo Telescope Mount EVA on day four by 24 hours. The medical team suggested that the crew continued to take the SCOP decks and perform a series of head movements, tipping the head to one side, then the other 30 to 40 times for periods of 10 minutes. However, when the crew did this, their nausea increased. The medics insisted that this was the only option but the astronauts and some flight directorate officials were not so sure. However, the crew for the most part endured it. Garriott completed two sessions on day three and Bean one session, but Lousma just completely avoided moving his head in any direction more than was absolutely necessary. By the fourth day, all three astronauts were feeling a little better. However, Garriott and Lausma still took medication, and with activation of the station now one day behind schedule, the EVA was once again postponed to mission day six. Even with the nausea, the crew's work rate began to improve, and activation slowly returned to to schedule. By mission day five everyone was feeling much better. Garriott was able to conduct 150 head movements with no ill effects. Al Bean demonstrated to viewers his new skills and ability to eat upside down and even Lausma said that the food tasted much better. Next, the doctors proposed that instead of eating a full meal, the crew should have several smaller meals to prevent their stomachs from initiating the feeling of nausea. You see, in 1973, the problem of space adaptation syndrome was still relatively new, and the symptoms were believed to be the result of the larger volume of Inside the orbiting workshop as compared to the much smaller, more restricted spacecraft used for previous missions. The Skylab's huge size allowed more rapid movements before the body had time to fully adjust to microgravity. Some earlier mission experiences and the results from Skylab 3 suggested that it took three or four days for the human body to totally adjust to orbital motion. Additionally, the rapid change 10 minutes from normal gravity on Earth to increase gravity during launch and finally to microgravity in orbit had the most disorienting effect on the body's systems. You may recall that one of Skylab's main scientific goals was to study the phenomenon of human adjustment to spaceflight and return to Earth. After the first crew was relatively untroubled by motion adaptation syndrome, the Skylab 3 crew's totally different experience presented the medics with three new sets of data to analyze an alternative outcome. Al Bean speculated that one of the problems in feeling so ill was that they were rushing around trying to get everything activated as soon as possible. His crew was not eating on time, they were not getting to bed on time, and they were not exercising. Al suggested that the next crew, who were all spaceflight rookies, prioritize mealtime and rest over activation, and that they should be allowed an extra day or two for adjustment to space, even if it delayed full activation of the station. The space adaptation syndrome experienced by the second crew was a definite concern for the medical staff and for NASA officials planning a longer stay for Skylab 4, and more importantly, frequent flights of the space shuttle. Although several astronauts had reported feeling sick on earlier missions, never had an entire crew been affected at the same time. The strange thing was, Al Bean never felt ill on his trip to the moon. And in ground tests, Lausma was one of the astronauts who achieved a high resistance to motion sickness. Obviously, space adaptation syndrome would require further study. From the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River, this is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 413 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 3, Rendezvous, Docking, and Vomit. Our next episode should be released on or about May 18th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box. I want to remind everyone that we have added two new methods of contributing to the podcast for your convenience. That is Zelle and Venmo. You can use those to send money to my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Webmaster Justin also put the QR codes for my Zelle and Venmo on the homepage for your convenience. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 233 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcasters. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at SpacerocketHist. And you can follow on Facebook as well, and you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash space rocket history. Okay, had some afterthoughts. As always, I apologize for the mispronunciation. That uh, space sickness medicine, that was a toughie there. (laughs) I had to break that one down. I still don't think I got it right. (laughs) Uh, Last episode, I mentioned that I would tell the story of how the names of the missions for Skylab got so confused, if enough of you wanted to hear it. And some of you wrote in and said that you did. So I'm going to do that in just a minute. But first, I wanted to tell you something I did on episode 412, and that was I planted an Easter egg in the photos on the website for that episode. One eagle-eyed listener and supporter found the Easter egg. Congratulations to Marco for his excellent job in locating that Easter egg. If you would like to see the Easter egg for yourself, I will give you a few hints. Of course, you have to go to episode 412 on the website. It has to do, the Easter egg has to do with the confusing nomenclature for Skylab. It is in the picture showing the astronauts leaving for the launch pad. And you will have to click the picture and maybe even zoom in to see it. If you find it, send me an email. And I will congratulate you on the podcast. You know, folks, uh, you may not have realized, and you probably didn't, that I tend to drop a few pop cultural reference type Easter eggs during these episodes. Many of those are science fiction related things, but sometimes it's something else. I've often wondered if anyone catches these references If you're catching a reference, (laughs) go ahead and let me know by email. It's uh, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Anyway, here is the story of how the nomenclature for the Skylab program got so confusing. Now, I am quoting this passage directly from David Hitt's book, Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story. Quote, It is important to note that there are two different systems of nomenclature for the Skylab flights. During the planning phase for the program, there was a debate as to whether the unmanned launch of the Skylab workshop should be numbered as one of the flights or whether only the three crewed missions should be counted. Ultimately, it was decided that the launch of the station should be numbered. It would be called Skylab 1, and the three-man flights would be Skylab 2, 3, and 4. That decision, however, had not been made at the time the crew patches were designed and ordered. So the flight suits were produced bearing patches marking the three-manned missions as Skylab 1, 2, and 3. As a result, both numbering systems were used in different places. Frequently the former system is written using Arabic numbers and sometimes with the two-letter mission abbreviation used for Skylab, thus SL1 through SL4. The latter system is generally written with Roman numerals and almost exclusively with Skylab written out, thus Skylab Roman numeral 1 through Skylab Roman numeral 4 IV. This is how astronaut Pogue explained the numbering system for their mission. When the Skylab crews were announced in 1971, the prime crews set about designing their mission insignia, or patch, as it was usually called. The missions were officially designated as Skylab 1, or I, Roman numeral I, or 1, for the unmanned launch of Skylab on the Saturn V, and Skylab's two, three, and four for the three manned visits which were launched on Saturn 1Bs. That seemed simple enough but mischief was not long in coming. We began receiving flight training and procedurals documents labeled SLM-1, SLM-2, and SLM-3 Arabic numbers for the three Skylab manned missions. Other documents were labeled SL-2, SL-3, SL-4 in Arabic numbers which conformed to the official mission designations. We began receiving mail and documents clearly meant for one of the other crews and the astronaut office mailroom became bewildered, confused, and uncertain as the rest of us. In the meantime, we had designed our mission patches incorporating the official numeric designations of Skylab 2, 3, and 4 in Arabic numerals during a visit by the NASA headquarters director of the Skylab program Pete Conrad asked him are we one two and three or are we two three and four and the director said you are one two and three so all of us went back to redesign new patches to incorporate the Arabic numbers 1, 2, and 3. Skylab 1 and 2 used Roman numerals and Jerry, Ed, and I used the Arabic numeral 3. The designs were rendered by artists and sent to NASA headquarters for approval. This whole process took several months, And the artwork didn't arrive at NASA headquarters until about six months before the scheduled launch of the Skylab. The associate administrator for manned spaceflight took one look at the artwork and disapproved the design because he said the official flight designations are 2, 3, and 4 using Arabic numbers. Thus informed, we dug out our original designs, 2, 3, and 4, and were in the process of getting the artwork done when we were informed by headquarters not to bother. We could use the designs for 1, 2, and 3. Then we found out why the change of heart. The people who had manufactured the Skylab flight clothing to be worn on board had already completed their work several weeks earlier in order to get the clothes packaged and shipped to the Cape to meet their deadline for stowage aboard the Skylab, which was already in pre-launch processing. Furthermore, they had already used the designs submitted earlier for the mission patches. They didn't have time in their schedule to wait for official approval. The designs using the numeric designation 1, 2, and 3 became approved by default because items with these patches were already manufactured and stowed in Skylab lockers at the Cape. Removing them for a patch changeout was considered much too expensive and disruptive during launch preparations. So, although officially designated as Skylab 2, 3, and 4 in Arabic numbers, the mission insignias bear the numeric designations as Skylab 2, Roman numeral 1, Skylab 3, Roman numeral 2, and Skylab 4, Arabic numeral 3. (laughs) When traveling in Afghanistan, I presented some Afghan VIPs with our Skylab 4 mission patch. One lady looked thoroughly confused and asked about the numeral 3 on the Skylab 4 patch. I gave her this long winded explanation, and by the time I finished, the Afghans were roaring with laughter. Today, it is especially confusing to autograph collectors who still scratch their heads trying to sort out their trophies. End quote. <laughs> I think the fatal decision was when they determined that the Skylab workshop had to have a number. That's what messed up everything going on forward from there. If they would have given it a zero or just called it plain old Skylab, this kind of confusion would not have happened. That's just my opinion, but I think I'm right. Okay, since that took so long to do, I think I'll just proceed on to donations. Over the past fortnight, we received four donations, and I would like to thank Galen A. from Vermont, who donated at the Vostok level and earned a Big Ten emoji. Tracy W. donated at the Vostok level and earned a satellite emoji. Henry E. donated at the Sputnik level and earned a rocket emoji. And Matthew M. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. Our total Patreon donors for 2023 have fallen to 239. That's down three from last episode. And I attribute that to probably expired credit cards on Patreon because every month we have a drop when the month changes because... Somebody's card expires. Hopefully those people will get that corrected and come on back and continue to pledge. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks, for 2023, have reached 301. We made it past 300 for this episode. I'm very pleased with an overall goal of reaching five, 450 for this year. So if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running now for over 10 years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage Spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check or use the QR codes to donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, at gmail.com. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
1: Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Simon Noon. Simon Noon, if you'll email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 301 of you who have contributed thus far in 2023.
0: My sources for this episode were NASA Skylab, our first space station by Leland Baloo Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story by David Hitt Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaldeck the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 414 posted on or about May 18th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.